We are continuing our series in the Apostles' Creed, taking a phrase at a time, and yet we're, we're doing a little bit of a step back here, um, thinking about the Trinity. That's the, the topic this morning. And, uh, and I, I don't know if you guys have heard, but next weekend, uh, we're celebrating 10 years as a church. So maybe you've heard, maybe not. Uh, got some things going on. I hope that you're able to come to really all four events that we have going on, or even help with the prep for the parade. But as I think about 10 years and have had opportunity, even in preparation for next weekend, to think and reflect on the beginning of our church, I, I think about how we evaluated the relationships that existed when we came to, to start this church, right? So we came, Redeemer had a group of folks, it was 35 adults and even more kids than that, that most of whom lived in Fountain Square or surrounding neighborhoods and wanted to see a church started here. And so as we were both thinking about coming and as we came, the, the question is, okay, what are the relationships like? What are the relationships like among the people who are in this group who want to see a church started? How do they relate to Redeemer? How do the folks that live in the neighborhood relate to their neighbors, folks who have maybe grown up here their whole lives or folks who are even newer to the neighborhood? What are relationships like with the churches in the neighborhood, whether that's other people in the neighborhood and their relationships to churches or the folks in the group and their relationship to all these things, like they, they all had significant impact on the way that we thought about the church. Take even, for example, we, we think about, okay, there are the relationships and then the, the logistics, right? But they're all connected. The fact that we have this space uh, that we have worshiped here, except for that brief time in COVID when we were at St. Mark's. We, we have been in this space since day one. Uh, and we now have office space and permanent nursery and children's worship on the third floor. And, um, and we have this space, and we have the space for the price that we have it for because of our relationship with the people at SECS, the community center that, that owns and runs this building. All of that is very, very relational because relationships matter. Right? And they, they, they dictate the creation of the church and the direction that it goes. And any number of relationships could change that dramatically. Last week, we talked about the phrase, maker of heaven and earth. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And, and this step back a little bit to look at the Trinity, let's just recognize a few things. The Bible doesn't have any passages that... that say here is the theology of the Trinity. And even the Apostles' Creed, which we're looking at over the series of this, this, this fall, doesn't say here's what the Trinity is, but they, they do clearly teach who God is as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so this passage, even John 14, re refers in detail to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but doesn't teach this particular thing, and yet I think it's helpful for us to take this step back and say, okay, what is the Trinity? What are some of the implications of it? And how we confess our faith each week using the Apostles' Creed, or how we read a passage like this in Scripture, because as we think about him as the maker of heaven and earth, all of creation, this is like a step back, bigger step back than 10 years, right? Step back to how does the world operate as a result of the relationships that existed before the creation of the world. Because the Trinity is this picture of our God 
who existed before the creation of this world, and it has implications, not only for the creation that occurred many, many years ago, but for us now. And my hope and prayer is that we see the implications of the Trinity and the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and how that actually matters for us. In all of its importance and beauty and mystery and clarity and foundational aspects, it does matter for us. And it is, I think, really hope-giving and life-giving. And so we will see three things uh, in this passage about the Trinity. The reality of it, the reality of the Trinity, the roles of the Trinity, and the relationships of the Trinity. See, I did all R's there, made it easy to remember. Excuse me. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth of who you are, our Trinitarian God, and that we would be shaped and uh, that we would find the beauty in who you are in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The reality of the Trinity, I've already mentioned, there's, there's not actually a passage that says, okay, here's the Trinity and here's how it works. Uh, and, and yet we can learn a few things from multiple passages and we're not going to cross-reference all of them. Uh, I'm actually going to refer first to the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism, which is uh, what our denomination uses as, okay, here's how we understand Scripture and and some of the theology that is contained in it. And this is actually not just uh, the Westminster Confession. The idea of the Trinity is this theology and this commitment that the church has said, this is foundational to who we are. This has been the case from the beginning. And if you are going to be a true church, you you believe in the Trinity. This is what, again, the church has said for centuries upon centuries. Question number five, are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. Question six, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. Three persons equal in power and glory. We're going to see that point number two is they have different roles, and yet they are always described as equal in substance, power, and, and glory. There, are, there is, again, this, this assumption, both in the creed and in Scripture, this truth of the Trinity. It's, it's again, just this thing that is underlying so many places we find reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. Uh, find it different in different places. Same thing. Uh, we find this description uh, existing all through, through Scripture. We find it here in chapter 14 of John. Jesus is assumed as in, in every single verse, verse 15 to 31. Jesus is the one who is speaking. He's talking about I. He's talking about being with you. He's talking about his relationship to the Father and the Spirit. So he's in every verse here that we've looked at. And then we find the Father is in half of them. He is explicitly mentioned in half of them. That the Father is different from the Son, and we'll see how he has different roles. And the Spirit is mentioned, is mentioned specifically, explicitly, in three verses, and yet he is the center of this passage. If you have opened one of the Pew Bibles up, you'll notice that there's a heading to this section that we are looking at this morning, and it's Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. That he's saying, I'm, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He is present with them physically. Holy God, holy man. We'll, we'll get to that 
uh, in the next few weeks as we look at the Apostles' Creed and who Jesus is. But uh, here he is with his people. He says, I'm going to go. We know about his death and resurrection and ascension. And then he says that, that the Father and I are going to send the Spirit to be with you. So the Spirit is central here. All three of them are contained here. And there is absolutely mystery. Let's be clear. There is mystery to the Trinity but I, I lament a little bit that I even made a joke about it a, a, two weeks ago, saying I was going to preach on the Trinity and I was going to you know, solve all uh, the, the questions and problems of the Trinity. I was going to explain it clearly. And, and the reason that I lament that is, look, there is absolutely mystery in the Trinity. God in one, existing in three persons. But we, we make sometimes the jokes about the mystery, or we have these bad illustrations that, we, that we've heard that actually don't illuminate the truth of the Trinity at all. Like you, he's, the Trinity's like an egg, the shell, and the white, and the yolk, and, but it's all one. And that uh, doesn't really actually help. Or it's like H2O in ice and water and vapor, and that there's also all kinds of ways and that falls apart. And so when those things don't help, we, we just think, oh, it's just mystery. And so then we don't even want to think about it, right? So let's not give a lot of time. Okay, it's just a mystery, and we dismiss it as only a mystery that we're never going to really grasp. But the reality is, is that God has revealed himself as a Trinitarian God and in ways that there are many things that we can understand. Yes, there will always be mystery. And yet, because he has chosen to reveal himself to us in all of his Trinitarian glory as the Father as the Son, and as the Holy Spirit, there are truths that we can understand that that bring clarity to who he is and that teach us about who he is and who we are. And this is the the point here is not to argue for the the Trinity, but there are a couple of things that I just want to address briefly as uh, we think about this reality. There are objections, how can it be one and three, and, you know, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and other religions even refer to this verse saying that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So folks would say, well, he can't be three if he's one. As, as if this says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is a mathematical singularity. And that's not what it says. I don't know if you have read it or remember what I just said before. It's the Lord is one. And this, this Hebrew word, ehad, is used in other places as well. It, it refers to a unity, a oneness, but not, again, a mathematical singularity. Genesis 2.24 tells us that God has created male and female and that they will become one together. And that's not to say that that's an analogy to the Trinity, but it's to recognize the use of this word, one, is not a reference to, again, a mathematical singularity. We see that even as we talk about God, we see in the Great Commission that there is this call to baptize in the name, the singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that there is this existence. Yes, there is mystery there. I also want to note that there is, is no place in Scripture for what we would call modalism. Modalism, the idea that, that this would be actually kind of like the, the ice, water, vapor, that he exists in, in one mode at a time. So sometimes he's the father, sometimes he's the son. Uh, I, I will recommend to you a book called, I, I have multiple times actually recommended this book, Delighting in the Trinity. Uh, it is really a beautiful book. Uh, that I think will actually help you delight in the Trinity. And I hope to communicate some of the things that have challenged me in that book. But uh, he calls it moodalism. 
you know, whatever mood God happens to be in, he just operates in that particular uh, mode or mood, right? There's some significant problems there that if he's the father, then he's not the son interceding for us. Or while he's the son, then we actually are left as orphans, verse 18, because there is no father at that moment, right? Or if he's the father or the son, then he's not the spirit who is our helper and with us always. It doesn't actually make sense. We're invited into this reality of God existing, referred to here very clearly as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, existing in three persons. And, and one of the ways that I think we would be helped to think about this mystery, to, to step into this reality, is that this would be where we would actually start because this is where God has started in his revelation of himself. Often what we do is we think about who God is and we try to read into a general idea of God, just the the general sense of God out there, the the monotheistic, often ends up being the old man in the sky who's judging and making decisions about people. And then we try to take that idea and read the Trinity into it. But God has actually revealed himself as the Trinity. And if if that is the place that we start in his word, then we're going to do a better job of finding what is true and real about who God is who has revealed himself is that we would actually start with him being trying to understand God in understanding him as the Trinity. I I don't know if you guys, I don't know how people feel about 3d movies. I would rather see the movie in 2d. I I don't, it it gives me a a headache. I I will say that particularly the first avatar, it was like visually stunning. I'll I'll give it that right. And, And it was done probably better than a lot of movies. It was certainly done better than 3D in the 80s, which is when I was growing up and they had some 3D. There was like this uh, period of some 3D movies. One of them, Return of the Creature, uh, they, they aired on broadcast TV. And if you went to like certain convenience stores and bought a Coke or Slurpee or something, you would get those 3D glasses with the red and the blue lenses. And, and it would help you see kind of a, a pretty weak 3D picture. But if you didn't have that, or even now, if you go to a movie and you have to get up to use the restroom or something, and you don't want to trip and take the glasses off, if you look at the screen, it's just a mess. It'll give you a headache. Uh, you can't really see what's happening. And, uh, and we need a lens by which we understand God, by which we understand who he is in, in the Trinity. And he has revealed himself in his, in his word. He's revealed himself. He's given us this lens by which we might understand him. This is central to who we are as followers of Jesus, that the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh, verse 14 of John 1, and dwelt among us. That is, Jesus, the word, has revealed who God is, and there is this overlap between his written word and Jesus himself. And, and so we use this lens in order to be invited into understanding who God really is as he has revealed himself, the reality of the Trinity. And that we would seek then to understand the things that we can understand. We can acknowledge mystery and then we can actually say, okay, what are the things that we can understand and what are the implications? One of the things that we can understand And to be clear, I'm not saying that there's not mystery at all points along the way, but we can understand some of the different roles that the different persons of the Trinity have. 
the father, and, and, and this, is, this is even uh, a, a, not an exhaustive list of the book of John. We just look at these verses, we see different roles played out. There's even more roles in the rest of the book of John and then the rest of scripture. So we're just going to look at uh, this passage and see some of the different roles though. The father sends both the spirit and the son, verse 24 and 26. He commands uh, the son, verse 31. He is a father just by his very nature, but he also tells us uh, that we see this fatherliness play out when he says in verse 18, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. So he is operating as a father. That is his, his role. He loves his people, verse 21 and 23. He gives the helper in verse 16. Now, as we see the different roles, there's, there's at times overlap where multiple, either two or all three persons of the Trinity will, will do some of the same things. And then there is also distinction. So some of these will overlap. The son comes to you, verse 18. We see this in the incarnation. We see it in his relational uh, nature. He loves as well, verse 21. He manifests himself to us, verse 21. That is this picture of him coming in his presence that he, he incarnated as a man. He makes his home with us along with the father in verse 23. He spoke the truth referenced in verse 25 and 26. He gives peace, leaves his peace with us. Verse 27. He obeys the father. Verse 31. We, we see different roles there when the father is commanded and the son obeys. And yet still equal in substance, power, and glory. They have these different roles, and yet they are completely equal. The Spirit is a helper, an advocate, a counselor. That, that's the, this Greek word paraclete in verse 16. Uh, and then again in, in later in the passage, verse 26. This word means advocate, helper, counselor. This picture of I will come to you. He is the one who helps and advocates for, who counsels us. He is the truth, the spirit of truth, also verse 16. He reminds of the truth that Jesus has proclaimed, verse 26. He will be with you forever, verse 16. He will dwell with you, verse 17. So we see all of the persons of the Trinity operating with these different roles, some overlapping, but they are working in this world and in relationship with the people, with his people. What are the implications here? Again, if these relationships existed, if these people, the persons of the Trinity, operated before the creation of the world, it has implications for the world in which they, the world which they created. We will make, we will create man in our image, in our likeness, we find in uh, Genesis chapter one. We're made in the image of God. The image of a God who is relational, who has different roles, and yet, again, is equal in substance, power, and glory continually. This calls for, this is the place where we, as followers of the Trinitarian God, believe that equality among all people with all their differences exists. Because we're created in his image, we have value, and because we are created in his image, we also have diversity and difference, and yet there is an equality there. As God exists in different roles, in the different persons of the Trinity, 
again, equal with substance, power, and glory. We, as human beings, with all of our differences, whether they're ethnic differences or racial differences or cultural differences or gender differences, that we exist with an equality that is not based on our ability to, to earn equality or to be in, in the right or good position. It means that we exist in those different roles. And the beauty of the church is that we're called together in all of that diversity and called to live in relationship with one another. First Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the gifts of the spirit in the body of Christ in the church. And we all have different gifts. And yet we all have equal value, worth, and dignity before our God and before one another. We want to acknowledge this reality, this truth of who we are. We want to be thankful for this, thinking of our different gifting. Just like living life together, taking even outside of the church, just living life together. We should be, if you're not an engineer, you're thankful for engineers because they, whether they're, engineering-minded and architects, or whether they're mechanics who build cars or designers, like we have buildings and bridges and cars and homes and all of these things because there are people who can do those things that, that I can't do. I think of any one of those, I, I can't do, do with them, right? Some of you might have some of those skills, right? We're, we're thankful for, I think about teachers. I've been so thankful for teachers uh, as I've had my kids grow up, right? I think particularly about kindergarten, first grade teachers, I would not be good at that. And I am at every point thankful for the teachers that my kids have had. And some of you are teachers here, and we are very thankful for you, right? Uh, we're thankful for artists who, who bring beauty uh, into the world, whether it's through song or paintings or sculptures or design. They, they make the places that we are beautiful, or they write books, as the case may be. We're thankful for that. I could never write a book, and I love reading, right? So we're thankful for the diversity that exists in, uh, in just as human beings. And this is all a reality that is rooted in a Trinitarian God who existed before the creation of the world. And that, that then informs the creation in which we live. And so this puts us in this place of being able to rest in who we are, in our uniqueness, created in the image of God, in relationship with him and with his people. That, that's not to say that our uniqueness is completely devoid of relationship. It's actually very connected to all of our relationships with the Trinitarian God, with the people who are part of the church. That, that's a part of who we are. But in that, it, with our differences, he is at work in us as followers of him, regardless of how we compare or stack up to one another. Each one of us is equally valuable Again, not because of what we've accomplished or how we stack up in relationship to our peers, but because of who we are in him. That's just the nature of being created by a Trinitarian God, being created in his image. And those realities of how we relate to one another, we find great hope in those relationships because God himself existed in relationship. This is the third point that all of the roles that we see here illuminated in John 14, they're all about relationship. I mean, the nature of a Trinitarian God is that he existed in relationship from eternity past. He never existed without relationship, in fact. 
This is fundamental to who he is. He is, by nature, relational. And that is really key to understanding not only who he is, but who we are as a result. First of all, who he is. You, you may have heard parts of 1 John chapter 4, two different places in that chapter that say God is love. God is love. If he is love, defined by love, foundationally love, that can only be the case if he, he can only be that foundationally if he's been that from time before creation. If he was a singular God with no relationship before creation, who would he love? If he didn't have the Father and the Spirit to love before creation, how would he be loved? There was not something there to love. And him being love is not dependent upon creation. It's not dependent upon us existing in order that he might love us. He was love before the creation of the world because he loved the Father, the Son, and the Son loved the Father and the Spirit. And there was this mutual love between the three of them. Jesus tells us in John chapter 17, verse 24, that before the creation of the world, the Father loved him. He loved him before the creation of the world so that, that he is foundationally loved because he existed in the Trinity. He's fundamentally a father, God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, because there was a son. He couldn't be foundationally, ultimately a father if he existed before, before the creation of a son. That would mean that there was something later to come and it wasn't foundational to who he was. But we see the description of God in scripture is that he is a God of relationship and love. It is founded in the fact that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. They were there together. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 gives us this picture of not only is the word about to go out and create the world, but God's spirit hovers over the waters before creation. That there is this picture of God existing in Trinity, even in Genesis chapter 1. Already referenced Genesis 1 as well. Let us make man, let us make man in our, in our own image after our likeness. The Trinity is at work in creation. And he's not dependent upon it in order that he might be, that he might figure out what relationship is because of what he created, or that he might learn love because he created something to love. No, he has always existed in relationship. And as a relational God, this being foundational to who he is, that relationship flowing through his love among the Trinity, among the three people in the Trinity, that means that his salvation is all about relationship. What he wants in his revelation of himself to us is relationship with his people. We talk about this all the time. There's a story in scripture that is all about him wanting relationship with his people and providing for that. He is in the Old Testament, well, first of all, he's the God who walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. He is in relationship with them. And then the fall messes things up, but then he is described as Yahweh, that personal name for God, who says, I will be your, peop- I will be your God and you will be my people. There's relationship that he desires here. And we see it all over this passage, John chapter 14. And we see this promise of the paraclete, 
paraclete, which means advocate, counselor, helper. It, it also carries with it this idea of coming alongside, of being with. That reference to the, to the Holy Spirit in verse 16 and verse 26. He is the helper who will be with you. He dwells with you, verse 17. And, and then the, the Son, you and me and I and you, verse 20. The Son again, I will manifest myself to him. The Son talking about he and the Father. We will come to him and make our home with him. The Father sent his Son, verse 24. Because he wanted to send more than just this revelation of truth. The written word that occurs, he sends himself to be in relationship with his people. But then this recognition that he's going to go and he's going to ascend into heaven. We, we know what's coming. He's going to sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, reigning and ruling for all time. And in the meantime, he then sends the spirit, the helper to be with you for 16 forever. All of this is about relationship and presence and connection to his people. And all of that is true because he is a relational God. Salvation is ultimately about relationship with the Trinitarian God. And it's fundamentally about relationship because he is fundamentally a relational being existing in that Trinitarian relationship. This should be incredibly encouraging to us that salvation isn't just about acceptance or getting to heaven or being made right being forgiven of our sins. It is, it is some of those things, right? But it's so that we can be in relationship with that relational God who wants to have us as a part of his family, sons and daughters of the king. And so we're drawn into that mutual delight that has existed forever. He wants us to be a part of it. He wants us to experience his love. And there are certainly implications, reference John 1 John chapter 4 about God being love and that from that flows us loving one another. He's relational and his, his relationships are all defined by love so that we are drawn into that and so that then our relationships are defined by love, that we would care for others, that we would delight in him and then love others as a result. So as he does his work of salvation, it is all this relational work and he's drawing us into that relationship with him, that love. And it's based on the fact that he is Trinity, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My, my prayer is that we wouldn't just dismiss this mystery, and absolutely lots of mystery here, right? That we wouldn't just dismiss it as mystery, but that we would dive in and see the beauty of who he is and as a result of what he invites us into, relationship with him who is defined by that. Let's pray.